Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes S.H. Fernando Jr. to discuss From the Streets of Shaolin, the Wu-Tang Saga, his biography of the Wu-Tang Clan. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by S.H. Fernando Jr., author of From the Streets of Shaolin, The Wu-Tang Saga. Skiz, so glad to have you. So excited to talk about this book. Thanks, Nathan. Great to be here. And this is a big, sprawling topic about hip-hop's biggest, most legendary crew, the Wu-Tang Clan. Nine major characters, or what, 12, 15 major characters, once you include Divine and Power and, and Cavadonna and the whole crew. How'd you keep it all straight? Like, how did you decide what to focus on? Did you just focus on RZA and build out from there? Or uh, Actually, it, 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 was, it was difficult. Um, you know, you're dealing with all these characters. Each of them has their own interesting story, but I tried to keep the focus on the group collectively you know this was a story about wu-tang how the group formed their background their influences uh the impact they had and um i you know the, the book is already 500 pages it could have been probably a thousand pages if they had let me keep going so i'm kind of glad that i did just focus on the group and now what you're seeing is a lot of the individual members are writing their own like personal biographies and I think that's a great thing because that's like almost like this is like the Encyclopedia Britannica of Wu Tang now, and I see my book as kind of like the like the big picture, the overarching structure of it, and that and then all these individual biographies that are coming out just fit right perfectly into the mix. 
Yeah, it's such an epic tale, and there's documentaries coming out and drama, uh, docudramas coming out telling the story. So, but let's talk about why we're talking about the Wu Tang and why the Wu Tang matters so much to Gen Xers like me and and younger folks too, but especially to Gen Xers. This to me is like right. the definitive uh, Gen X collective. And if you've got a quote here early on, I want to read in full. It says, Wu Tang represented the underdog everywhere, defying insurmountable odds to make it to their top. Their whole DIY approach, grassroots and underground, made their impact on the mainstream all the more impressive. For generations of youth who grew up under the full sway of hip hop in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, they are our Beatles or Rolling Stones. I mean, that's big talk, but the clan delivered. Like, talk about how you see the scope of their accomplishment. Even though they didn't accomplish half of what they set out to, they still topped the game. What? Well, to be honest, I think they did because to me, they, they brought in a whole, they, to me, they represent a renaissance of hip hop. You know, that's why I kind of go into hip hop's origins in the Bronx and in the seventies, because it's hard to kind of gauge the scope of hip hop today. Cause it's like pop culture. It's hard to kind of gauge like the scope of it by, you know, by talking about where it came from, it, it has such humble origins and to me, Wu-Tang kind of parallels hip-hop in that they represent an organic movement that started from the bottom and then they ended up on top, you know, just like hip-hop itself. So so basically, you know, hip-hop started, you know, in the early 70s with D- DJ Cool Herc, and then it grew through the 80s. By the, by the early 90s, it had become really corporate. People don't really remember that now, but like when I was in college, I, I was class in 90. When I was in college, the big hip hop was uh, Tone Loke, Wild Thing, Young MC, Bust a Move, MC Hammer, You Can't Touch This, Vanilla Ice. That was that's what really what was con- considered rap in the early '90s, and it was total corporate, total commercialized. It didn't represent the culture at all. But what Wu Tang did is they came in practically out of nowhere. And they brought it back to the streets. They reclaimed hip hop culture for the streets. Okay, and what that means is, hip hop is hip hop is not a music. It's a it's a culture. It's an art form. You know, everyone talks about the five elements of hip hop: DJing, MCing, breakdancing, graffiti, and I would even throw in fashion and slang in there too. And basically, what what the Klan did was they 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 brought a celebration of the roots of hip hop back to the forefront, and they did it on their own terms. You know, they didn't they didn't come into the industry shopping a demo and trying to get on a major label. They they basically these nine guys from the projects they put all their money in the pot, like fifty bucks each. They went into the studio. They cut one track, "Protect Your Neck." They pressed it up on vinyl, which, you know, that was the medium back then. You know, we didn't have the Internet. We didn't have CDs even at that time. And they took this, they they pressed up a couple thousand copies and they hit the streets and they took it to record stores. They got DJs to play it. And just out of their own works, they were able to create a huge underground buzz for this single. And then major labels approached them and started offering them a deal. And then what they did differently also was now they were in kind of like the driver's seat. So instead of going for any old deal, 
Rizza, who was kind of like the architect of the clan, he's the he's the producer. He he also rhymes, but he was also kind of the business mind behind them. He said, "Look, I've already been in the industry before. I know what it's like. Artists are artists are always exploited. You know, we have no say in the matter. We're told by the record company to do this and that. This time, I'm going to totally infiltrate the industry." And I'm going to sign my group to one label, which he did. He signed Wu-Tang to Loud Records in an unprecedented deal, by the way. They got full creative control. And also, here's the key thing. There's a there's a standard clause in music industry contracts. It's called the leaving member clause. And what that's 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 standard. That's been standard in music industry contracts from way back. And what that says is if a group is signed to a label, the label has the right to sign each individual member of that label. So RZA says, "Look, you're not going to you're not going to catch all of us with this one deal. I want you to delete that clause from the label, so I have the right to sign all of the individual MCs to solo deals at other labels." And this is exactly what he did. So he signed Wu Tang. He took a little less money up front. You know, he signed Wu Tang to Loud Records, which was a new label for 60 grand, which was really nothing at the time for, think about it, 60 grand divided by nine people. That's not a lot. And plus, that's the budget to make the album. But then he signed all the individual members to different labels. He signed Method Man to Def Jam. He signed ODB to Elektra. Uh, uh, Loud was able to keep Raekwon because they came up with enough money. He signed Genius to Geffen. He signed Ghostface to Sony. And this was all within a span of like three years. So basically, the Wu-Tang album came out in 93. And then every few months after that, you had a solo clan album dropping. But each of the solo albums also had all the all of the other Wu-Tang clan members of it on it. So each solo album was like a mini Wu-Tang clan album. So between 93 and 97 when they released the second Wu-Tang Clan album, they pretty much dominated the industry. And that's exactly what the plan that RZA had come in to do, you know? So, And let's uh, go ahead and, and hear that first track that they dropped. This is the original radio edit of the Protect Your Neck single, the self-released version uh, put out by RZA himself. That's the original single version of Protect Your Neck, the single that Wu-Tang Clan dropped on their own independently that literally reoriented the industry back to New York and to underground hip hop. And, the, you know, there have been a lot of New York, very, I mean, great New York rappers that came in their wake, Nas, uh, Mob Deep, et cetera, et cetera. But Wu-Tang were the last ones that were able to recenter hip hop culture in New York and put the streets of New York back on top. And this is during, you know, the peak of the Dr. Dre Snoop Dogg era when West Coast G-Funk gangster rap is absolutely ruling. And, you know, Wu-Tang is able to pull the gravi- gravity of, of hip hop back to New York, 
create space for people like Notorious B.I.G. Uh, to blow up and and recenter it back in the culture. But let's let's backtrack a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about their two things. Their status as Gen X, post-civil rights generation, latchkey kids, and growing up in Staten Island. Because to me, I mean, they are the definitive Gen X group. And Staten Island is a whole different borough. I mean, it's the forgotten borough. And for the hip-hop world to be suddenly centered in Staten Island, it's very reminiscent to me of the Beatles pulling the gravity of the pop world to Liverpool. Like, Liverpool? Where's that? Staten Island? What are you talking about? How did they pull it off? And what was it about Staten Island and their background as Gen Xers coming up there that prepared them to take over the world like this? Well, I, I, I go to it pretty deeply in my book about Staten Island in particular, because as you said, it, 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 it was no Sorry about that. It was known as the Forgotten Borough. And, um, you know, pretty much all of the clan you know, a, a lot of them grew up in Brooklyn and then moved to Staten Island later on, you know, in, in kind of elementary school, junior high. You had Riza, Jizza, and ODB, the three cousins uh, who pretty much kind of grew up in Brooklyn, and Riza moved to Staten Island later on. But, uh, you know, Staten Island got no respect back in the day. Out of all the five boroughs, um, you know, you'd go to a party and the DJ would say, is Brooklyn in the house? Is Bronx in the house? How about Queens, Manhattan? No one ever mentioned Staten Island. So these guys kind of had a chip on their shoulder as far as like we, you know, we need to represent Staten Island. We need to represent our borough because historically, you know, you didn't have a lot of groups coming out of Staten Island. You had early on, you had the force MDs. And then right before Wu-Tang Clan dropped, you had a group called the UMCs. But Staten Island, as you said, it was not a borough known for hip hop. If, you if you've ever been out there, it almost doesn't look like New York. It's kind of very suburban. And the funny thing is, a lot of NYPD lives out there. Um, and also, Staten Island is also known because a lot of mob, mob bosses live out there. Um, but right at the right at right near the harbor where the ferry docks there's a couple housing projects you got park hill and stapleton two rival housing projects and this is where the, the most of the wu-tang clan grew up but the thing about staten island is it is it is actually physically it, it is an island it's separated from the rest of new york and because because of that island because of its island nature, its its isolation, I think the clan had time to really develop their craft, you know, without a lot of pressure and hype. They could go to other boroughs and they could go to Manhattan and go to the hip hop clubs and see what was going on. But then they could bring it back to Staten Island and and kind of, as I said, hone their craft. And, the, and basically they had each other to kind of sharpen their skills. And there's a quote that Rizzo says in the book, steel, sharpen steel. And basically all the clan members were like the top MCs in Staten Island and they used to battle each other. And that's how that's what made them. That's how they basically got good. They, they were battling each other. They were seeing what was going on in the other boroughs and they took it back home and they just they honed it and they developed it. And, um, 
you know, I think that's why Staten Island is is kind of special in that respect. And then finally, you know, after years of being in the dungeon, um, they kind of exploded out onto the scene in in '93 with Protect Your Neck. And it, and that aspect of coming out of nowhere and yet being connected to New York is totally unique and and will never happen again. I mean, they put Staten Island on the map. Staten Island's not as isolated. And yeah, reading the book, it was fascinating to read about the differences between you know Brownsville, Brooklyn, where a lot of them that grew up, which was solid projects as far as I could see, basically. And and then moving out to Staten Island, it's like even though they were in projects, there was ponds and they could have these little Huckleberry Finn adventures. But there's all these white people who are not to diss Staten Island too much, but I think they've earned it. Some of the most racist white people in New York, which is saying something. And, <laughs> and you know, my family's my in-laws are from Massapequa. So, you know, I can kind of talk on outer boroughs a little bit. But, you know, they're giving Massapequa a run for the money as far as being, you know, uptight white people and, and just blatant, flagrant, violent racism in their face. So they're kind oh, of yes. hardened. Especially back in the day, especially like in the 70s and 80s, you know, if you saw the if you saw the Showtime documentary on Wu-Tang, a lot a lot of the guys called Staten Island a mini Mississippi, you know, so that pretty much says it all. Yeah, no doubt. Let's hear our next song. This is uh, Bring to Ruckus, which was the first track on uh, the first Wu-Tang album. My clock burst, leaving a hearse, I did worse. I come rough, jump like an elephant tusk. Your head rush, fly like Egyptian musk. Ah, we take clear spark the wixen. However, I mastered a trick just like Nixon. Cause and terror, quick damage your whole error. Hard rocks is like the f- I found shot in yellow style. Hazardous, cause I wreck this dangerous. I blow spots like Waco, Texas. And that was Bring to Ruckus, which opened the first Wu-Tang album, The Legendary 36 Chambers. And um, trying to keep us on point, we're jumping around a little bit. One thing I want to talk about before we get too far, and you mentioned this, was that both RZA and Jizza had already had experience with big-time labels. Not major labels, but major hip-hop indies. Tommy Boy, I guess Tommy Boy probably already had a major label deal by that point. Um, yeah, they did. Rakim was Rakim Rizza was Prince Rakim, not to be confused with Rakim of Eric B and Rakim, but he was Prince Rakim. He did a single on Tommy Boy, and Genius is on Cold Chillin', and he drops an album, Words from the Genius. Both of those come out in 1991. Um, neither of them were fully satisfying either artistically or commercially. What were the big lessons they learned from that experience? Well, the big lessons they learned was how. Um you know, the, the industry was basically manipulating artists into doing what they wanted to do into, into basically, you know, trying to, trying to appeal to a, a commercial mainstream audience. Cause as I said, in the early nineties, you know, the MC hammers, the vanilla ices, the young MCs were kind of running hip hop and they were getting the big sales. So that major labels wanted to copy that type of formula and they kind of it's it's kind of like square square pegs, you know. They're trying to fit fit these street dudes into a certain mold, and these guys just didn't fit that mold, you know. Ooh, yes. we love you. Ooh, we love you, Rakim is totally 
alien to what rip was off. it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's so funny exactly. to go back and see this, and, and and you got genius looking like kid in play, you know, and, and Riza doing a heavy D rip off. It's just staggering. And for me, as a fan of both Tommy Boy, you know, put out the legendary Planet Rock in '82, put out the De La Soul albums, Paris, so many great stuff on Tommy Boy, and Cold Chillin', obviously the home of Marley Marl and Biz Markie. I mean, these are legendary labels and they're doing this stuff, you know, so it had to be massively disillusioning, but so educational for Riza. And he uh, and forgive me for jumping on you. I just want to compress some of this stuff so I can get to you for the money bits. But Riza has this searing experience after that where he goes out to Steubenville, Ohio with his mom. And, you know, he's he's washed out of the record business. He's been dropped by Tommy Boy. He ends up in a shootout and has to go to trial. You know, and my wife's a prosecutor, and I know how rarely young black men win trials in this country, but he actually got acquitted. Uh, they were trying to railroad him for eight years on an attempted murder charge. And, and he, you know, he put all his chips on the table, didn't take the plea, goes to trial, wins, comes back, and he's a renewed man. He's got a vision. And this to me is the most fascinating thing about Riz's vision because a lot of hip hop artists. Like Beastie Boys and De La Soul in particular come to mind had really recontextualized pop culture and some masterpiece work. But RZA has this vision uh, that makes these pop cultural references, puts them in a context that adds this meaning and depth to it. Tell us about RZA's vision and how he combined kung fu movies, the rhetoric of the 5% nation and comic books and made something much bigger than the sum of the parts. Yeah, I mean, you know, that that was the, the, the whole concept of Wu-Tang is so powerful because it's basically, um, you know, he basically took his childhood and all the all the influence of his childhood and he rolled it all into one. And he said, this is what we're this is what we're going to represent, you know, um, you know, as a as a as a as a young kid. I'm not even talking about a teenager when eight, nine years old. He spent a lot of time on 42nd Street, Times Square when it was really sleazy. This is like in the in the 70s, early 80s. It was really sleazy. And he would frequent those those theaters where they showed Kung Fu. And it had such a such a profound influence on him and his cousins, ODB and Jizza. And you know they 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 were they were watching these kung fu movies and they they really took some of the concepts to heart you know about brotherhood about trust about honor respect you know these were the these were the concepts that they absorbed from those movies and you know um, also in New York at the time um, you had the Saturday afternoon matinee which also showed kung fu movies so this is not something that just RZA was seeing but every kid in new york that was almost like a ritual saturday afternoon ritual was to go watch these old kung fu movies and you know subliminally they're absorbing all these concepts uh another influence the five percent nation huge huge influence on hip-hop um in the 70s and 80s especially because that that whole movement pretty much grew grew up parallel with hip-hop you know um it's a, just to just to kind of give it to you in a nutshell. It's a, it's a splinter group of the Nation of Islam, and basically the founder Clarence 13X Smith. Basically, what he wanted to do was he wanted to teach those 
there's principles of, of empowerment um, to the kids and, and, and to the kids on the street and also to people in prison, you know, who need, who needed this the most. And one of the main tenets of the five percenters, which was the name of his splinter group was that the black man is God. And, you know, it seems, it seems, it seems kind of an astonishing concept, but when you really get down to it, you know, when you're a young black kid growing up in a low budget environment and society is basically shitting on you and saying that you're nothing. And then for someone to say, no, you are actually God. You are the creator of your own destiny. That is a powerful concept. And Riza, when he was 12 years old, you know, he became a five percenter and he's one of the youngest uh, members to memorize the 120 supreme wisdom lessons, which you had to memorize word for word. And all of the Wu-Tang members are, in fact, members of the five percent nation or they were at the time. So that was a powerful influence on them. You know, there's 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 a degree of um, of uh, discipline involved and mental clarity just to just to be able to memorize stuff like that and also when you when you think of yourself as a god as a creator of your own destiny you act differently you know and you treat other people differently you know i've been a lot i've been around a lot of rappers and you know like the n-word flows like water but when you're around wu-tang you know they they are so they are so respectful to each other peace god peace lord that's what they call each other, you know, and the, these these um, concepts were really in their DNA. You know, this is this is stuff that they absorbed as, as in their childhood. Another thing, comic books, you know, that was another important um, influence of their childhood. So basically, Rizzo took all of these influences from his childhood, rolled them up into one ball and, you know, came up with this concept of Wu-Tang Clan, obviously. Ghostface had a lot to do with the name, too, because Ghost was a slang master. And, um, that, you know, after he saw that movie Shaolin versus Wu-Tang, Ghost called everything that was dope. He was calling it Wu-Tang. That's Wu-Tang. That's Wu-Tang. You know, he used to call his favorite um, brand of, of, of malt liquor um, old English 500, 8, 800, he used to call that Wu-Tang. And, you know, Rizzo kind of saw this, too. He saw saw the effect of that name in the neighborhoods of Sha- of Staten Island, how when Ghost started using it, everyone started using it. Every Everything that was cool was called Wu-Tang. So he took that and he said, you know what, we're going to be Wu-Tang Clan, you know? And so take a quick break and hear from our sponsor when we come back we'll talk about how they marketed that vision how they well how, first how they made it into art and then how they marketed it hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds our family now has three pairs of raycon earbuds around the house and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price and yes she loves them Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And yeah, proper for this interview, I've been thinking obviously about the Wu-Tang a lot. And to me, there's this sort of generational difference. I mean, they're definitive Gen Xers, but the way they embraced things like Kung Fu movies and comic books, but put it in this context of the 5% nation, to me, it's prophetic of the way that the millennials would take pop culture and the way something like the Marvel comic cinematic universe becomes mainstream culture and not just a side stream. It's, it's not just kid stuff. Like they showed how these genre entertainments that people had treated as kid stuff, kid stuff could actually become the centerpiece and a metaphor for a really you know, all encompassing vision that you could put real life concerns and tell adult stories in this context that seems silly on the face of it. But to me, the whole way, you know, millennials are unabashed Dungeons and Dragons players and stuff and video game fans and things like in Gen X, we get beat up for this stuff. You know, we did it, but you didn't, you know, talk about how you were into Kung Fu movies all the time. Um, I mean, you did, but it wasn't tr- taken seriously. But the Wu Tang somehow managed to make it seriously. And then they put this whole thing together. Tell us a little bit about how he put the crew together, how he picked who he picked, and also how he picked his business crew. Because to me, that's almost just as important as the rapping crew that he put together. Well, well, when you talk about Wu Tang, you can't get away from family. You know, you can't get away from brotherhood because, as I said, all of these guys knew each other you know, from the time they were kids, you know, a lot of them went to elementary, junior high, high school together. And, you know, when I was researching the book, I found out that there was a, there's a lot of connections between the guys. Uh, not only did they know each other, the moms knew each other, you know, and then, um, you know, like, go, like I said, Ghostface was a roommate of Riz's for a while. He ended up having a baby with with one of Riz's younger sisters, you know. Same thing with, like, You God and Method Man. Um, Method Man used to sell crack for You God, and they dated a, a, a two sisters. Meth ended up marrying one of the sisters. You God had a baby with one of them, and uh, Meth's first child is named Raekwon after his friend Raekwon the chef. So there's so many family connections between the guys. And I think that's really what made them strong. And, um, you know, they all used to hang out at Riz's mother's place in the projects 
and work on music almost every weekend. You know, that was kind of like a ritual. All of the guys who ended up in the group were guys who used to hang pretty hard at Riz's place. And I think that's how he that's how he chose the members of the group. In fact, he has he has different histories with each individual, each of the individual members. But that's pretty much how he chose who would be in the clan, because there's a ton of rappers in Staten Island and especially in those projects. And there was another faction um, called the Gladiator Posse, which is more from the Stapleton projects. And they kind of became something else. You know, they didn't become Wu-10. They, they called themselves GP Wu. But the actual nine uh, members of the clan were guys that Riza had a strong personal relationship and that he knew for a long time. So it was almost like a family coming into this, you know, and I think that's also why Wu-Tang has had, you know, longevity in the game, because even though they've had their disagreements and arguments and we've you know, a lot of it has been very public, you know, they still stayed together as a group. And here we are next year is the 30th anniversary of Enter the Wu-Tang. And these guys are in their 50s. They're still touring together. You know, they're still selling out. Um, packed audiences and stuff. And when you go to a Wu-Tang show, it's such a diverse crowd and not only diverse racially, but diverse age-wise. You know, like you got the Gen Xers like like you and me who who kind of came up with the group and now people have introduced their kids to them, you know? So that's why kind of Wu-Tang is such a universal movement. Yeah, and that's that's something that's meant a lot to me. And everybody about the Wu-Tang and especially, you know, coming out of the 5% nation. I remember, you know, when public enemy first came out and their uh, associations with the nation of Islam was so controversial. And, and the 5% nation is fascinating because it's, it's mainly a mnemonic practice more than a religion. Like they don't have churches, et cetera. They teach these lessons and people pass them on. It's almost like Buddhism in that it's not a religion so much as a practice and a way of looking at the world. And so it strips away a lot. It manages to keep the empowering message. I mean, we live in a world where every white kid is told, you're the child of Adam. Adam's made in the image of God. He names all the animals and everything else. And black people get this, yeah, you're kind of the child of Adam, but not really kind of thing. And it's so powerful, I imagine, you know, for black folks to hear, you too are the child of God. You're God in God's image. You are a God. You're a creator. And so it keeps the positive. But, you know, like Riza has that thing where he makes the Wu-Tang sign with his hands and talks about how it brings all the nation of the world together. And it's just really powerful and, and inspirational and meant a lot to everybody. And I think was, you know, responsible for their continued influence and why they mean so much to zoomers and millennials and stuff you know like i play a lot of music for my kids and uh wu-tang is one of the few things they don't mock me and complain about they just you know just dig it so let's hear our next track this is method man bring the pain I'm sick, insane, crazy, driving Miss Daisy Out of my mind, now I got mine, I'm swayed Is it real, son? Is it really real, son? Let me know it's real, son, if it's really real Something I can feel, son, load it up and kill One, 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 son, if it's really real uh. When I was a little stereo, stereo I listened to some champion, champion I always wonder, wonder When I would be the number one yeah. <laughs> Now you listen to the dog, and that was Method Man's Bring the Pain. And that was one of the first singles off his uh, solo album, which was 
technically sort of the first solo album by Wu-Tang member. RZA had this Gravediggers project with Prince Paul. I don't want to get into that too much because it's kind of Wu-Tang, kind of not. A great album, though, Gravediggers, Six Feet Deep. But Method Man was the first star to emerge out of the crew. Signs with Def Jam at the time, one of the most still one of the most powerful labels in the business, puts out his uh, Tickle album in November '94, and then ODB, Old Dirty Bastard, hits with Return to the Thirty Six Chambers on Elektra in March '95. You know Raekwon solo album uh, on Loud, and Loud's a subsidiary of RCA. It's important to mention that it was this tiny label but it wasn't a total indie steve rifkin was connected and and had that major label deal and i think it was also important that rca was a major label that wasn't a big hip-hop label so they didn't have a whole crew of people who felt like they were experts and so they were the wu-tang was able to cut their deal but has this incredible run i put out all these solo albums but there's this tragedy and for a nerd like me this really makes me literally makes me lose sleep at night but Rizza had some floods in his house and lost entire albums on floppy disks, including Inspector Deck's solo album, which never ends up coming out. Can you talk a little bit about that? How did that happen and how did that affect the group dynamic? Yeah, actually, yeah, there were Rizza's been plagued by several floods during his career. And I think that happened. I talk about that in the book. I think that happened right after he finished doing um, Meth and Dirty's albums. So those albums were all right. He was able to, you know, he, he was able to salvage those albums. But unfortunately, Inspector Deck, who's, who's kind of like the unsung hero of the Klan, uh, was greatly affected because then he was also signed to Loud uh, but after Raekwon was signed to Loud. So, you know, in the major label system, um, you know, you have, you, you basically have to wait your turn to, to, for, for your album release. So all of the, all of the effort was put into Raekwon's album, which came out in August of 95, all of the promotion, budget, everything. And then also in the interim, Big Pun was signed to Loud. So somehow, um, you know, Deck got kind of pushed back because big because then all of a sudden Big Pun is now this huge figure in rap, and you know it's all it, all, it basically it all comes down to industry politics. So you know once you're on these major labels, you got to kind of abide by their release schedule, and because of the flood, because of the industry politics, Deck got pushed back. I don't think his album came out till like 98 or 99, if I'm not mistaken. And the, the album that came out uncontrolled substance is nothing like the original version, which was the one that was, you know, pre flood. So yeah, that really, that really kind of affected inspector Deck's career hugely, you know, cause he could have been, even though his album went gold, he could have had a he could have had a platinum album, and he could have been, you know, one of the main guys like like you know Method Man or Ghostface or ODB. But he's kind of now, you know, I, I think I think Wu Tang fans, you know, know his importance within the clan and they appreciate him. But he could have been much bigger on a on a mainstream level. But you know, 
he's the type of guy who he, you know, he accepted his fate and he he's he's constantly worked and worked and worked. He's constantly putting out albums. He just put out an album in 2019, so he's still doing his thing. And he's also in a side project called Czarface with these other guys. So, you know, things like that happen in the industry. And, you know, as much as RZA had such a, a master plan, nothing ever goes according to plan, you know, so. Yeah, when I was talking earlier about how he didn't realize his vision, because his vision was, I mean, he basically, if they had pulled it off, RZA and Divine, his brother, would be the modern Barry Gordy, you know, the king right. of the industry, if they'd been able. But, you know, Barry Gordy had this assembly line system and it was easier to control people but even you know barry gordy could only control you know people like marvin gay and Smokey robinson for so long and and rizzo was not able to keep everybody happy by the time they do their second album you know some of them have had platinum solo albums odb has become this massive pop culture celebrity method man has also emerged in the mainstream as a straight up celebrity, you know, Raekwon and Jizza have these massively successful and Ghostface Killer, two massively successful and critically acclaimed records. And then some guys haven't gotten a deal at all. So tell us a little bit about when they came back together for the Wu-Tang forever session sessions and how it was different than recording the 36 chambers. Yeah, you know, as you said, uh, a lot of the guys had had experienced stardom, you know, they, they were no longer just these like hungry guys from the projects trying to get on. They were certified superstars, you know, and with that comes kind of an attitude. So basically, you know, previously you were in a situation where Rizzo was like, I'm driving the bus. Everyone does what I say. He's kind of like the dictator. And now he's in a position where he's got he's got nine generals you know no one's a soldier they're all generals now so everyone's got their own opinion every everyone's got you know their own um kind of importance within the group and it was a whole different dynamic uh doing that wu-tang forever album and that's one of the reasons that they did it in la because rizzo thought there would be too many distractions in new york because you got to realize, too, that each member of Wu-Tang has their own entourage, you know. So when if you go to a Wu-Tang session, it's not just the nine guys, but it's kind of like nine times nine because Old Dirty will bring his people. Meth will bring his people. Raekwon will bring his people. So you got a huge you got you know, you got a huge party going on in the studio. So basically. In, in, in doing the album in L.A., Rizzo wanted to isolate the guys. So it was just them, no entourage. It was just the members of the group. And he wanted to kind of recreate that feeling of what it was like doing the first album. Because to, doing the first album, they were all together in, in, in Firehouse Studios in Manhattan. And no one had an attitude. Everyone was kind of deferring to whatever Rizzo said. Now you get the complete opposite situation, you know, like. Everyone's a star. Oh, I want this. I want that. You know, Dirty's being very difficult. You know, he's, uh, you know, I, I talk about this in the book. He's he's referring to himself in the third person. He's like, oh, Dirty doesn't do that. Dirty doesn't do this. You know, he had to be really coaxed into appearing on songs and stuff like that. And plus, you know, he was in the midst of developing this huge full-blown substance abuse problem um 
the kind of people that the other members of the group kind of looked the other way. But yeah, it was a whole different dynamic. And, you know, I saw it firsthand because um, I, I went out to do a cover story for them on the source. And and kind of ironically, I arrived on the morning after Biggie, the, no, the notorious B.I.G. had been shot in L.A. at a vibe party. And the whole town of L.A. was buzzing. Like I get I, I land and like everyone's talking about it. It's in the news. My editor at the source was freaking out. The the publicist at Loud was freaking out. And I, you know, I, I talked to Rizza. I called him up as soon as I got into town just to make connections so we could look up. He didn't mention it. And then I went to his hotel room, was hanging out with him for a couple hours as he played me some beats from the new album. He didn't even mention it. Then the other guys slowly trickle into the room. No one's talking about the death of Notorious B.I.G. So I, I didn't. I didn't bring it up either, you know. So um, it was just it, it was a weird dynamic, and because um, I remember everyone, a lot of people had come to L.A. for that vibe party, and anyone from New York was kind of just like rushing back to New York then because they were like, oh, this is, you know, this is part of the East Coast West Coast beef. We don't want to get caught in L.A. But Wu Tang was just doing their thing. They were they were here to do an album, and they kind of I don't know if they if they if they were acting that way on my behalf, but they kind of just cut it all out and they were focusing on the record, which is a good thing. But, um, I kind of got, I kind of got carried off on a different tangent there, but yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting. I wanted you to get that story out. Cause it, to me, it put a shadow over that whole album and let's hear our next track. And then we'll talk about a couple other things with that album and then how the whole kind of master plan collapsed. So this is old dirty bastards, Brooklyn zoo. Blown to death, you got shot, cause you're knock, knock, knock. Who's there? Another oh, hard rock. Slacking on your back, and cause Ross wants your lap. You wanna react? Bring it on back. Yeah, same with you, with you stepped up to the old dirty bastard. Brooklyn, so shame on you, when you stepped up to the old dirty bastard. Brooklyn, so Brooklyn, so shame on you, when you stepped up to the old dirty bastard. Brooklyn, so shame on you, when you stepped and that was Brooklyn Zoo from the ODB, one of the singles off his first solo album, Return to the 36 Chambers. And so, yeah, to me, it's like that's one of two big factors from the industry that wasn't internal to the Wu-Tang Clan that kind of put a bad mojo on the album. And the other trend that I think damaged that album was it just became de rigueur to put out double CDs. Every hip hop album all of a sudden had to be a two CD set. And so Wu-Tang Forever to me, it's like the Clash Sandinista or whatever, you know, three album set and all the heads are like talking about, here's how I edit it down from my playlist. You know, right. everybody has their own Wu-Tang Forever mix and almost everybody cuts out the first track, which I'm torn on because it's, you know, got their uncles, Uncle Wu talking about the 5% and stuff. But like, you know, when I'm playing for my kid, he's like, what is this? Let's get to the album, you know? And, <laughs> right. and so, so it's, you know, kind of this bloated album, but then it's still, it hits the industry hard, debuts at number one, I mean, globally, number one everywhere. But then things start to go wrong. They've got this tour book with Rage Against the Machine, which is this um, you know, heavy metal hip hop group, the integrated interracial band, but it's primarily a white audience. The Wu-Tang's going out uh, and playing for rock audiences on a big scale every night for the first time. And then they get called back in the middle of this to play Hot 97 Summer Jam, 
talk about those two things and how it all went wrong. Yeah, well, first of all, I should mention that Wu-Tang Forever was a hugely popular album, and it, it actually went four times platinum because it was a double CD. So it went double. It actually went double platinum, but since it's two CDs, that's four times platinum. So it was actually, you know, pe- critics loved it. The fans loved it. Sure, it was bloated. But, uh, you know, the way RZA explained it was, you know, we got a lot of guys in the group, and to get everyone to shine, you know, we need a little more real estate so that's why Wu Tang did a double album. I know, I know, like Tupac did it, and you know Bone Thugs did it, but Wu Tang actually had a good reason to do a double album. Yeah, that's totally. Um, secondly, um, with, as far as the Rage Against the Mas- Machine situation, um, you know, this is still '97. This is four years after Wu Tang has entered the industry. They're still pretty raw, you know. They're still pretty street and they they you know, only rizza had that savvy to be like hey this could be a really good thing rage is going to expose us to a whole different audience that could be a great thing then you had other factions of the group like raekwon and ghost who were kind of more street dudes and they were like hey nah man we want to we want to perform to our community they you know they were used to doing the black clubs in brooklyn and queens and stuff like that they they were used to seeing you know, black guys in the audience, and now you're doing the Rage show, and not only are they seeing white people, but they're seeing like 20,000, 30,000 white people, and they're kind of like a little bit uh, puzzled, you know, it's kind of like, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't have the savvy to see it how RZA saw it as like a smart business move as to be like, this is going to, you know, increase our audience, they were still kind of in that street mode, you know, um, so that's one reason. Um, and then, you know, at the, at the same time, when you do, they, they didn't, you know, they, they, they didn't real, I used to go to Wu, Wu-Tang shows back in the day and they were completely chaotic, especially shows in New York, you know, it was like fights would break out. It was just like chaotic. So they didn't, at that time, they still didn't have the professionalism to think, okay, we're going on tour. That means everyone's got to show up all all nine of the guys have got to show up every night and be on stage and you had a you had a situation where dirty was off doing his own thing sometimes he showed up sometimes he didn't and then like you know a couple times after dirty didn't show up the other guys are saying hey he didn't show up he's still getting paid i'm not going to show up you know so it was like to me it was a situation of not being professional and not taking taking it seriously and then you know, they had the opportunity to do this Hot 97 summer stage. And, you know, I, I, I fought Hot 97, too, because basically the way the way it went down was Hot 97 kind of threatened them in a way. They said, hey, we've been playing a lot of your music. You kind of owe us this. You know, if you don't show up, you know, we don't have to really play your music. So, you know, and Hot 97 is the station. The, yeah, it was the station in New York. And not only New York, you got to realize it set the that tone Hot, for the whole country. Exactly. It, it set the tone for every urban station in the country. So anyway, Wu-Tang was not big on radio play anyway. But, you know, they said, all right, they gritted their teeth and they said, all right, we're, we're in Europe, but we're going to come back. They had to pay their own plane tickets back to come back and do this Hot 97 gig. And it didn't sit well with some of the guys, especially some of the more outspoken members like Ghostface. 
So when Ghostface gets on stage, what does he do? He disses Hot 97. And that was kind of like the real death blow because you can't, you can't, you can't diss like the, 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 the station that's kind of like the industry standard, you know? Yeah. That's a classic bite in the hand that feeds. Um, so that, that really affected their radio play going forward. And, you know, it was, it was all of these little missteps that kind of led, led to the kind of downfall of the group and the, but, you know, they still kept on doing it. They, you know, I would even argue that the W that came out in 2000 was a great album, you know, and they, they were able oh, yeah. to still stick together and do that. And then I think after that, it kind of fell apart because also you have a situation where hip hop is changing too. you know, the, the center of gravity is no longer New York. Now it's moved to the dirty South. And now you get artists from the dirty South who are really kind of leading the charge. So, you know, nothing is dirty South coming up from under. And then meanwhile, they got the jiggy era with Puff and Jay-Z exactly ridiculous suits. And, and, you know, there's not really a spot. Exactly. The whole deal, we haven't talked about the business side. I mean, you've covered so much great ground, but we haven't talked about the business side as much as I hope to. But that was the other thing was that Wu-Tang was a production company and these artists signed to the production company and then the production company signed deals with these labels. And this is not unheard of. I mean, the Rolling Stones had a deal like this. Phil Spector would have deals like this back in the day before he had his own record label. But it's a, a kind of an exceptional deal when artists are able to do this. But then once they're this big, and things are happening, like Inspector Deck's album doesn't come out and is actually lost to history. Some of the guys just start getting restive and are like, "Why do I have to wait for Rizzo to get to produce my album? I could get, you know, my other friends to produce me. You know, now I'm friends with everybody in the industry. I could get the Neptunes to come in and produce myself or Timberland or whoever." Right. And, and they're real restive, and the whole deal falls apart. Talk about that a little bit, and then t- can and then segue very little time started this on but i want to talk about the the dissolution and death of odb too and how okay. his it was his refusal to sign back with wu-tang productions that really was the death now well you know the, these guys are are you know I, as i said after the first round of solo albums these guys are now becoming superstars and when your head gets big and you get an attitude, you kind of forget where you come from, you know? And, and to me, a lot of these guys owed RZA their lives, you know, cause without RZA, they'd still be up, out on the street doing dirt, you know, or dead or in prison, who knows, you know, but when the business is not right, you know, and I'm not, and I'm not taking sides here, but I'm like the Wu-Tang productions and, you know, we don't know the inner workings of that, but maybe the business wasn't right, you know? So those guys had, 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 you know, a right to, to kind of strike off on their own. Everyone got their own manager at that point. It was no longer, no longer under Wu-Tang management. A lot of the venom went to divine who was kind of the business guy. That's Riz's brother, you know, and, you know, these things kind of had to happen. But uh, I, I think the fatal mistake in that in the second round of solo albums was the fact that RZA was not really involved in them, except for Ghost's album, Supreme Clientele. You know, the other members of the clan, like you said, they went off with other producers. They kind of tried to do their own thing. And I think they lost part of the Wu-Tang magic because really you can't you cannot discount um 
Riz's contribution to all of this, you know, I mean, this guy was one of the hottest producers in the nineties and one, also one of the most innovative producers and to not use him on your records. I mean, that's, you know, you're just, you're asking for it then, you know? So I think that's a major reason that a lot of the second round of solo albums didn't do as well as the first and also, you kind of had this lingering feelings, you know, from the business end of how, oh, I'm not getting my fair share. You know, these are bound. This is stuff that's bound to happen. But ultimately, you know, as I said, the the, the guys the guys kind of stayed together on on a group level, and they still tour. Unfortunately, Dirty situation is one that you know, I, I really feel sad about that too because I don't think that I don't think that ODB had to die. I think. And I, I have a whole chapter on ODB in the book and charting his downfall. And when you see the steps that led to his downfall, it didn't have to go down like that at all. I mean, to me, looking at it from an outsider and from a completely objective view, I think just his his whole run in with the criminal justice system was the problem, because once you're in that criminal justice system, you just can't get out, you know. And he had a lot of missteps, like not showing up for a court date and stuff like that. Once you do stuff like that, you get deeper and deeper into the hole. And then to compound this by having a substance abuse problem, and you know, you're at this point, he's got so much money, he's got so much disposable income that he can spend on on drugs. You know, that's another that's another thing. And you know, I talked to all the individual clansmen about, you know you know, what they could have done. And everyone has regrets about that because everyone knew he had a drug problem. But at the same time, they say, you know, this is a grown man. You can't tell him what to do at the end of the day. You know, Rizzo would say, you know, I would take Dirty's stash of, of Coke and flush it down the toilet. And then Dirty would be mad at me. He wouldn't come around for like a month. So it's like, what does he want to be the good guy or does he want to have his have his brother hang hanging out with him, you know. So it was a very difficult situation, and I think losing Dirty too. He was kind of, to me. He was kind of like the heart and soul of the clan, you know. Kind of everyone kind of looked to him is for leadership on one level, you know. And when he went down, uh, you know, the Wu Tang Clan could never be the same after that, you know. So that's a sad episode. Yeah, it's and, it's, it's a heartbreaker, and your chapter on it really told the story in a way i could understand because at the time it was such a celebrity joke you know he was right he was it was so ha ha you know every night david letterman and everybody was i don't want to sing a lot day but all the late night comics were right you know making jokes about odb got arrested again odb missed another court hearing blah 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 but when you read the story and you understand you know he's being targeted by gangs there so he has to have some protection and once you have protection then you got guns then you got legal troubles exactly you know, he's, he's you know? got the dr substance abuse problem that so he's always in possession and he's always missing hearings and it's just a shame i'm ashamed as an american that this is a country that puts odb in jail i mean we put james brown in jail i mean it's just what is wrong with us you know because everybody loves odb that's the shameful thing and and we treat him like this and it's it's just um i promised steph i wouldn't get weepy about <laughs> and, and also look at look at how he's treated compared to hollywood stars you know like oh, yeah Lohan or 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 um What's his name? Iron Man. Um, Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, Robert I mean, Downey Jr. You know, these guys are allowed to go to rehab and finish their rehab and everything, and they come out and they're allowed to. But, you know, ODB didn't really have that option, you know, so. 
Yeah. And just it's not- another it's another fact of being black in America. You know, there's a double standard, you know, and it's this is indisputable, you know, especially when it comes to the criminal justice system. Yeah, and it, it just ground ODB into powder. And, and you know, like you said, ODB was so much of the heart and soul of, of the Wu, uh, you know. And it's been inspiring to see them press on. Like you said, they put out more. Really, some great work has come out. Riz's Bobby Digital mm-hmm. album, for sure. The W is a great album. Uh, you know, and there's so much more to tell, but we have to do a whole other episode on that. So Skiz Fernando, my guest, has been S.H. Fernando Jr., the book is from the streets of Shaolin, the Wu Tang saga. Thanks so much for coming on and talking about the Wu Tang. Hey, thanks a lot. It's been my pleasure. I can talk Wu for hours. So if you ever <laughs> want to do it again, you like... back. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks again. Peace. All right. Thanks, guys. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes Jason Millard to discuss his book, Progressive Country, and the late Jan Reed's classic, Redneck Rock. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.